This is episode two of Ships, and today's guest is Teodora Pavkovich. Welcome to Ships. My name is Pat McCandrew, and I am a professional actor, speaker, and coach. In every episode, we discuss a message related to the most important vessels in our lives. Thanks for being here today. Now let's set sail. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for today's episode of Ships. And we have an amazing guest with us today. Her name is Teodora Pavkovich. And she is a New York City-based psychologist, international speaker, and parenting coach with over 10 years of international experience working with children and parents with emotional and behavioral difficulties, as well as adults with mood and anxiety problems. She specializes in digital wellness and parenting in the age of technology and addresses these issues with an approach rooted in emotional intelligence and neuroscience as well as positive psychology and mindfulness practices. She is frequently invited to speak, train, and facilitate at diverse venues such as schools, co-working spaces, museums, and coffee shops, and in front of diverse audiences comprising of teachers, young professionals, parents, children, and therapists. Her tips on parenting, well-being, empathy, emotional intelligence, and other psychological topics have appeared in articles on NBC News, ThriveWorks, Huffington Post, and Thrive Global, among others. She recently spoke on the topic of emodiversity at the TEDx Pickering Street Conference in Singapore. And I'm telling you, for this episode of Ships, we talk about a lot of good stuff. From emo diversity, what's emo diversity? Wondering what that is? We talk about it in this episode. We also talk about the impact that technology is having on parents and the raising of young children and what difficulties that presents. And then we also talk about our emotions and uh, how we regulate emotions while still acknowledging emotions such as anger and fear that tend to have a negative connotation. I really hope you enjoy this episode. I guarantee that you will. And if you really like it, feel free to share it with your friends if you think they'll get some value out of it. So, without further ado, here's Teodora Pavkovich. So welcome back to the Ships Podcast. Tia, we're very excited to have you today. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation, Pat. So we connected, I guess it was about a year or so ago through Yeah, something like that. Yeah, through um, the Center for Humane Tech. They have a community forum that they put together. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Center for Humane Tech, I highly recommend checking it out. Um, And so we got connected through there. I believe I reached out and was very inspired by the work you're doing. Yes, yes. I, uh, I remember that. I remember you, you reaching out and telling me a little bit about um, the work you're doing as well. And I just love the fact that 
um, that you're using your acting experience to to maybe use it on a on a platform that we don't think about that often. We don't tend to think about using the skills that actors learn to then help other people communicate better. But I love the fact that that that's what you do. Oh well, thank you. I I really appreciate that. Uh, so yeah. so let's dive in a little bit for for those of you who. Uh, aren't may may not be familiar with you and your work. Maybe you could just share a little bit sure. about your background and where you're from, where you sure. grew up, and and what brought you to the work that you're doing today. Sure, sure. So I think each one of those of those segments of your question would take up a little bit of time for us. Um, so I'm going to start with uh, maybe just with with kind of my background with the work that I do. So. Uh, I'm a I'm a psychotherapist and a parenting coach, and the kind of main focus of my work really is on digital wellness and parenting in the age of technology. So I work with individual clients, I work with kids and with parents who need some help around those issues. But I also, because I like to kind of to get this message across to as many people as possible in one go, I I go out and I do a lot of workshops and and talks and trainings as well, and I do those in in different places like um, schools, uh, co-working places, uh, more traditional looking workplaces, and then some kind of less less traditional places as well. Like I've been invited to speak at, at museums and and coffee shops and, um, and, and some other venues like that as well. So that's really the main focus of, of my work. But then what kind of lies beneath that are a few kind of foundational pillars. And, and those are um, research from the field of neuroscience, um, emotional intelligence, mindfulness practices, and positive psychology practices as well. And so everything that I do really is, in, is informed um, by those four fields. And so as a result of that, I also do work with, with people who are either not parents at all or don't have any uh, you know, issues around uh, tech use per se, but but need a little bit of of help in their day, daily lives, dealing with their emotions, with their relationships, um, with their behavior, with with their thinking, uh, generally wanting to improve their well-being. Um, because my, my approach is also very strengths-based. I'm, I'm very focused on people's strengths, on the inner resources that they have, and Unfortunately, because of just kind of certain um, certain features of our brain, we do tend to focus on the negative a lot easier than we tend to focus on the positive. And so a lot of us tend to kind of forget what what our inner resources are, what our character strengths are. And so I really like to work with people, whatever their background, whatever their issue on kind of raising their own awareness of what their own strengths are and then seeing how we can use those um, to improve to improve their their life and one of the the new projects that I'm working on that I'm very excited about is combining um, a few different elements that maybe don't seem related but I think they they deep down they really are um, art and uh, mindfulness and some hypnotherapy work as well um, and that's a program that I'm that I'm working on that I'll have more information about pretty soon. Wow. Well, what's hypnotherapy? So hypnotherapy is, it's a very interesting form of, of therapy. Um, hypnosis has been around for a very long time. It has a very interesting reputation. Um, you know, you'll, you'll see a lot of those, uh, you'll see it in the movies a lot, those kind of the Vegas shows where they'll do mass hypnosis and make people dance like chickens and um, do, you know, take off their clothes and do all kinds of weird things. So, so um, hypnosis itself has had, uh, I think, a little bit of a negative 
image as a result of that. Um, but foundationally, what it basically is, is it's a it's a form of communication really between two people. So between the, you know, the, the therapist and the client where what you're trying to do really is, is go around those mind blocks, those conscious um, uh, mind blocks that we, that we all have that prevent us from, again, accessing things like our, like our strengths and our, our deepest um, beliefs, our deepest resources. And hypnotherapy is a way to really access those because what we try to do is we try to kind of get around your, your conscious mind and go down a little bit deeper into your, into your subconscious and try to really almost kind of unlock um, and, and liberate some of those inner resources that you have. And so um, hypnotherapy has been used for all kinds of things. Um, some of the most kind of popular um, ailments have been things like smoking, uh, quitting, you know, different, basically changing our habits. So things like quitting smoking, it's been shown to be really, really effective with that. Um, exploring uh, dreams, that's been another really popular one. So it has been used for all kinds of, of um of, of different issues. And I like to use it not necessarily in a very formal kind of way with, with people I work with, but I think there are a lot of really wonderful techniques that you can use within hypnotherapy, some of which I think overlap with mindfulness uh, practices as well, um, to really get people to be a little bit more mindful of themselves and again of their inner resources that that's really the main thing for me and so this new program that I'm working on I've used some of those um, techniques that help people to really become a lot more mindful a lot more uh, insightful to really use their inner resources to help themselves feel better and I use art as as a kind of medium to to achieve oh, wow. that and I imagine that using hypnotherapy, I, I imagine it's only becoming even more prevalent now with how often we're on our devices and um, almost that technology is serving as those blocks that you were telling about. Uh, have you noticed that at all or? Yeah. I, well, I, when it comes to hypnotherapy itself, I think there's there's also a little bit of um, of, of kind of cultural differences when, when you look at the the whole world. You know, different types of therapies are are more or less used in in different parts of the world. So in the U.S. in general, I don't actually see it that often. I think there, there are different methods, perhaps that are that are applied a little bit more here, although. The man who's considered to be the the founder of of kind of of modern day hypnotherapy, a man called Milton Erickson, um, spent his whole life in Arizona. Uh, so so he was an American, and I would really encourage all of our listeners to to look him up. He was really an exceptional uh, human being, uh, traditionally trained to be a doctor, and then picked up on a lot of these 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 different skills within the field of hypnotherapy and really modernized uh, the approach in in incredible ways. And he was an amazing storyteller, um, and so he used storytelling really as a way to to induce trance with with people. Um, I think one of the one of the really interesting things in a, in a lot of really amazing psychologists and, and therapists have have said that is that really in our daily lives we we are in a trance already um yeah. you know uh, usually the 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 kind of the habitual uh, things, behaviors that we engage in on a daily basis are what put us into a trance. Things like, you know, brushing your teeth every morning. It's not something you necessarily need to think about. 
you just kind of do it instinctively because you've you've basically trained yourself to do that. You know, making your breakfast, um, checking your email for the first time in the morning, turning on the TV, putting your clothes on. A lot of those those repetitive um, actions actually put us into a trance, but into somewhat of a mindless trance. You know, our, our focus kind of drifts away. We're not really paying attention to anything in particular. And I think what we really need to do, especially nowadays, like you said, because of the role of technology, is really, in a way, kind of choose the trance that we want to be in oh, yeah. um, and, and think about what are the what are the behaviors that we're engaging on on a daily basis? How many of those are just really mindless things that we've just kind of programmed ourselves to do? And how many of them are, are things that we're actually uh, you know, choosing to do. And of course, I'm not discouraging anyone from brushing their teeth because <laughs> right, that's really right. important. But it's about, it, it's, it's about uh, what, you know, what do you, what do you, how are you doing that? Or what are you doing when you're, when you're uh, brushing your teeth? Um, one of the, the activities that, that I find really just a kind of a cool way to turn our brains on a little bit is to try and use your non-dominant hand to brush your teeth every once in a while. Oh my gosh. Uh, because it, it, that'd be so it, difficult. It, yeah. It's, Oh, it's not easy. It's not easy at all because it's it's activities like those that kind of break the trance in a sense. Um, you can be induced into that kind of mindless trance when you're just doing repetitive things, you know, over and over and over and over again. As soon as you change one little component, it's it's seemingly a, a small thing. You know, you just shift from your right hand to the left or from your left hand to the right. Even small changes like that can just really, like I said, they break the trance because your brain goes, hang on, what? Like what you're making me use the other hand now? Like what's well, what are we doing? Why is this happening? You know, so so you get a little bit of that shot of of dopamine. You get that novelty that kind of just switches on your brain and gets your brain to think, oh, something something new is happening in 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 this environment. And so I think those are that's that's a really nice way of thinking about changing habits. I think it's probably one of the you know the biggest issues that people come to therapy for. I think it's either you know, it'll either be relationships. Um, anytime we have problems, they'll manifest through our through our relationships because we're such social creatures. And then the other one will usually be habits. We're usually, you know, we're stuck in 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 some kind of rut, in some kind of um, you know re repetitive activity that we're not really happy with anymore. Whether it's to do with um, with addictive things like um, you know sugar or drugs or or alcohol. Or just in general, we, we may have certain habits that we that we want to change. And so we, we are constantly in a trance. Uh, like I said, I think it's it, technology has contributed to it in, in really, really big ways because it gives us so many uh, so many possibilities to really switch off our brains, um, whether you're playing Candy Crush or, uh, in, you know, infinitely scrolling through wh whatever the, the platform is. Um, we, we've entered in a way this kind of age of, of mindlessness that I think we really need to we need to wake ourselves up from we need to um, we, we need to get out of that kind of a trance yeah it makes me think about what trances I've been living in that I don't quite realize yeah, yeah. and sure. you're so right it's yes. uh, we do so many things that are mindless that we don't even think about and um, while some of those may serve us well like brushing our teeth good oral hygiene uh, yeah. what what of those yeah trances are not serving us well it's good good food of food for thought sure yeah it's an important question for sure and so 
this is all amazing stuff. How did you get to this point where, uh, you know, so much of your work and research is, is about these things? I know you do a lot with psychotherapy and positive psychology. So how, how yeah. did you end up on this path? It wasn't a, um, it well, it wasn't, it wasn't a clear, clear path. Uh, that's why I said earlier, kind of to answer, to answer that question of, of kind of how I've gotten to where I am now. I think it would, it would take a little bit of time. So I'm going to try and, and, um, and, and kind of narrow it down as, as much as I can. But I think the, 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 the kind of foundational reason for, for everything really that I do now and the way that I, that I do it all is the fact that I'm a third culture kid. And so, um, I'm, I'm originally from, from Eastern Europe, from, from Serbia, but I didn't grow up there. And so I currently, I live in, in New York City and in the US and America is the ninth country that I've lived in. So I've really been all, yeah, I've been all over the place and, um, it's been wonderful on the one hand. Absolutely. I'm very kind of protective of, of, of that fact in, in my life that I've grown up in such a, a multicultural, international kind of environment and that the world really has has been my my oyster and I'm incredibly thankful uh, to my parents primarily for that um, but it, th- there are difficulties um, that, that come with that which is why my path to um, to to working in this field in the way that I do hasn't always been very clear because I, I've, I've moved around quite a bit but I did know from relatively early on when I was about 15 or 16 that I was either going to um, to study psychology and then become a psychotherapist or my other really big love was was art history um but but psychology ended up uh, kind of winning winning that battle although uh, like i said there's this program that i'm working on now that kind of combines those those two things which is why i'm so excited about it but um i knew very early on that i was interested in psychotherapy and so i studied uh, psychology as an undergraduate, I then did a master's degree in in clinical psychology, and then then after that, the the kind of the the road got a little bit more confusing because I wasn't quite sure where I was going to go after that. Um, and then, kind of one thing led to another. Um, I I worked as a vision therapist for a little bit with visually impaired kids. I've worked with kids kind of my whole life in in all kinds of different settings, both as a as a volunteer and as a as a teacher, uh, working with special needs kids um, and kindergarten kids, middle school kids, kind of across the board. And so I worked as a as a vision therapist for a little while in Singapore, and then after that, I kind of rejoined the main track of psychotherapy, did some some additional training in that field, and I and I did that at the School of Positive Psychology in in Singapore, which is where that whole kind of positive psychology uh, component comes in. And I still I still um, uh, consult with the school as well, so I've I've maintained a. a, a a relationship with them all all these years. So, uh, so that was where the the psychotherapy training really came from, and that focus on positive psychology, a focus on mindfulness practices, um, as well. And then living in Southeast Asia, where technology is is really really very highly valued, and it's it's a part of everyone's life, and it becomes a part of every child's life very early on. I started to notice the kind of impact that that it was having on kids, and that was where that initial interest in the role of technology in our lives as adults, but in children's lives as well. That was where where it first came about, and that was about about four years ago or so. So that that part of it, the the kind of digital wellness part, has only really 
come about relatively recently for me. Up until then, I worked a lot, like I said, with with children. Um, but in my kind of around my my graduate school years, I was mostly focused on on adults, younger and older adults, and uh, depression and anxiety in particular. So doing um, a lot of diagnostics on individuals with with those mental health issues. Um, you know, studying the ways in which we can help them improve and and things like that. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot of information there. Yeah, it's well, and it's fascinating too. Just to uh, like you kind of came in in this way of um, n- noticing it from from the really young ages yeah. that, yeah. Uh, and and from this unique perspective of of vision therapy and what it was really doing sure. to, to their health. Sure. And so, so I know obviously you were just saying that you do a lot of work with, with children and, and their parents and, and what has been your experience with dealing with that or working with that parent to child relationship and how prevalent is the issue with tech with families today? Right. Um, it's, it's it's a really big issue today, obviously, and and parenting in the age of technology is something that that I have been focusing on for the past few years because I've noticed just how big of an issue it is. I don't think you you'll come across a single parent who doesn't have some either concern when it comes to that or an opinion on it or you know, a fear related to it or, you know, whatever it is. So it's, it's as prevalent as the technology is, right? It's, it's in all of our homes. All parents are definitely concerned about it, but I've found that there's, um, there are, there are differences in terms of how parents feel about the tech. You'll have a whole spectrum, um, you know, and on one end you'll have parents who, love technology themselves who think it's a it's a fantastic positive thing and they expose their kids to to lots of technology and they're kind of they're perfectly fine with it some of the concerns that they maybe have is okay once the kid is on the app um, on the platform on the website how do we keep them safe so in terms of you know they'll be interested to know a bit more about parental controls um, uh, some you know privacy issues uh, things like that so how, how to keep the kids safe once they're actually using the tech. And then you have uh, parents who are, yes, they're concerned with with that, of course, some of those privacy issues, but they're concerned with just the fact that their kids are exposed to this technology, just the fact that the kids are using the tech is a concern for them. And they have a lot of questions about, should they be using the tech at all? At what age should they start using the tech? Is there good tech versus bad tech? Is there such a thing as educational uh, tech? You know, should they be watching things like YouTube or, you know, should they be watching Netflix? What are the safety concerns? How is this impacting their brain? Uh, how is this impacting them emotionally? Uh, because, you know, every parent who has a child who uses technology knows what happens when you try to take the technology away from them. Usually there's a, a, a huge kind of hissy fit waiting waiting to happen once you do that Hmm. so so parents are concerned when they see when they see that that kind of behavior and then of course you have all the way on the other side of the of the spectrum you have parents who um kind of rule with an iron fist when it comes to that so they they are they feel very strongly about their children you know either not using any tech at all or just using very very small 
small amounts of, of technology. And of course, the, the very interesting trend that we've been observing just when you when you look at the US is that the Waldorf schools uh, that don't allow for any kind of technology to be used up until I think middle school or maybe even not until high school, they've become incredibly popular, mostly in the San Francisco Bay Area, which of course is where mm -hmm. All well, most of the parents, we can't say all the parents, but most of those parents do work in the tech industry. So they're working at the Googles and the Facebooks and Pinterests and, and all these different companies. So, so one, you know, one thing I've seen is that there is a very wide spectrum of parents in terms of how they feel about technology, what their concerns and fears are, which of course then makes it difficult, if not impossible, really to create you know, one approach that works for everybody. And one of the reasons why you can't do that, not it's not just because of the parents, it's because of the kids as well. Um, you, you can make somewhat generalized statements about child development. Of course, you know, we see different trends with most one, two, three-year-olds. Then when you compare them to five, six, seven-year-olds, you know, they'll, they'll differ in some, some very kind of basic ways. But at the same time, each child is a little bit different. Um, and we all know this. Um, kids can control their impulses to different extents. Um, they will like to read or hate to read to different extents. Um, they can they can just handle tech very very differently. And so that's why, while on the one hand, I really love to speak to groups and I like to kind of like I said get the message across to as many people as possible. I think it's really important to also be able to work with you know families or or parents one-on-one uh, -on -one as well to really help you know, literally coach them through, okay, what is going to be our approach to technology in our own home, depending on what our child is is capable of doing and and what we would like our child to, to learn about technology. Because again, parents really differ when it comes to this. So you really do, you do get a whole, um, a whole array kind of, of of different attitudes. And I try, again, as best as I can to to really respect all of those those differences that that parents come forward with, um, sometimes I'll have parents who are very very open to absolutely everything I say, and they'll take on every kind of you know suggestion or piece of advice that I have. Other times I have come across parents who've been um, who who've well just kind of rejected <laughs> what I've said uh, respectfully, of course, but who who do have kind of either their own opinions on on technology or uh, you know sometimes you will you will get parents who are very very defensive um, about their children's use of technology which is why I always try to say that you know it, you, you haven't ruined your child because you let them use technology and it's understandable that in households with where both parents work technology is often going to be used as the babysitter or as the time filler while you need to take three minutes to go to the bathroom or 20 to cook dinner or just you know 15 minutes to speak to your spouse because you haven't seen them for you know five days or something like that so I try to be very um, supportive with parents very understanding and and try to keep the guilt and the shaming out of it as much as possible to really really be non non-judgmental as much as possible but again you know people people are different and I think you know what you might find might find as well with the population you work with different people just have a very different reaction to when you start talking to them about digital wellness and and building up uh, a healthy relationship with tech 
And have you run into situations, whether it be people or parents, that might say something along the lines of, oh, well, you know, this is just the technology of today. It was the same way when we were growing up with TV or, right. or when millennials were growing up and they had uh, video games and we were always saying like, oh, yeah. stop playing with your Nintendo or something like that. Right. Um, it, is it similar or is it different? Well, yeah, it's it's really hard to say. Uh, you know, we, we uh, attended the, well, and spoke in the panel discussion, right, a couple of weeks ago at the, the screening of the, right. the new film Child Disrupted. And one of our panelists brought up the, the issue that, you know, the, the TV was a much feared form of technology back in the, you know, whatever it was, the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, but you couldn't pick it up and take it out of the house with you, uh, you know, and you, and you wouldn't have wanted to either. So, I think I think the the problem now with this kind of technology is that it's just omnipresent. It's there all the time. It's it's with us at all times. It's not it doesn't have a designated space and a designated time, which is one of the things that I always talk to individuals and to families and parents and children about is really about creating those times and spaces where you're using technology in a very mindful a very aware kind of way, right? So that you're not in that trance. But it used to be that the TV was in the living room. You had the one TV. It probably wasn't very good quality, you know, video or audio, but you would get together as a family and you would watch, you know, you'd see when, when the man, you know, landed on the moon for the very first time. And it was a big thing because probably the whole neighborhood also came in and, 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 you know, watch that with you. So I think some of the older technologies, brought people together in a physical way. Whereas the technologies we have now are not bringing people together in a physical way. They're bringing us together digitally, right? They're, they're bringing us together online, which is, I think, fooling us into thinking that we are still together, um, but we're not. We're absolutely not. And again, it, I, that, that's why I always try and use a lot of neuroscience when I, when I talk about these topics, because a lot of the research on the brain shows us that there is absolutely a huge difference between when we as humans all get together physically and face-to-face -face, as opposed to when we get, you know, together, uh, quotation marks, on, you know, a platform of any kind, whatever it might be, if it's if it's Facebook or a chat room or, or whatever else it is. So I think that's, you know, that's, that's the slightly, the slightly scary thing is that seemingly we are better connected, but we're not, we're kind of, again, we're in that trance, we're being fooled into thinking that uh, we're not being fooled into thinking we're hyper-connected. We are hyper-connected, but we're not necessarily hyper-connected in a way that is healthy for our, for our brains, for our emotional lives, um, for, for just our, our mental wellness um, in, in general. So, and again, like I said, you do have that whole segment of the population that really loves technology. That is, what I often find is that the individuals who love technology hmm. are also very dependent on it. And that is where the defensiveness uh, comes in, right? Because, and there was a wonderful article written in, I'm not sure what the, the newspaper was. It may have been um, the New York Times uh, about a woman who tried to quit kind of all the big tech giants. Um, you know, one week she chose Google, another one she chose Amazon, then she chose Microsoft and she kind of went through all of them. And I'd again, encourage everybody to read that article because she had an incredibly difficult time doing that. Um, I think Amazon was probably the most, the most difficult run because, 
the most difficult one to to quit because you know when you think about it if you do depend on well you 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 can potentially depend on Amazon for pretty much everything that you do in your daily life, right? You can get anything from from Amazon. Uh, you can order your food, you can order your books, you can order yeah, your and tables, get it the next you can day, order right? your cushions, you can order your, yeah, you can order your underwear. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, anything, absolutely anything. And so if you do use, you know, the full array of services that Amazon provides you and you have, uh, you know, one of their home speakers, and you basically have, you know, the whole thing. And then I come in and talk to you about digital wellness. And I talk to you about connecting less to the tech. Of course, you're going to have a, an emotional reaction to that because your first kind of fear is going to be, yeah, but how am I going to do it without Amazon? How, how am I supposed to function? It, it causes people a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress and, and a lot of fear because again, there is that uh, dependence on it. And I'm not even talking about addictive forms of dependence, right? So people who are actually, who then become addicted to gaming or to, you know, again, infinite strolling, checking, tapping, all those kinds of things. I'm just talking about just from a very uh, kind of practical perspective that a lot of these um, tech companies are really making us very, very highly dependent on them. They are, of course, also making our lives um, a lot easier. A lot of the time with, you know, like you said, next day deliveries and, and things like that. But I think, and, and again, that's one of the, the things that I really feel people need to kind of wake up to and really be aware of is that these companies are not really backing down when it comes to that. So if you, you know, if you keep track of some of the patents that Amazon has been applying for or, or you know, some of these other companies, you know, it, it's things like, uh, you know, creating smart ovens where your <laughs> oven will be able to talk to you and suggest things to you and, you know, tell you when the turkey is almost done or not done or, you know, suggest a kind like, of why, stuff. Why make, why make friends when I can be friends with my oven, right? Yeah, exactly. I can just, you know, I can, I can talk to the oven, um, you know, and, and again, <laughs> we saw that in the movie Her, I forget how many years ago now it was, uh, with, uh, with Joaquin Phoenix and, um, and Scarlett Johansson, that, that relationship that builds between you and essentially an inanimate object. But when that inanimate object has a voice coming out of it, um, that, you know, sounds very human and, and is made to sound very, you know, emotionally appropriate and all these different things, you do kind of, you start forming a relationship with it again, because we're, we're such social creatures. So I think, you know, I really encourage people to kind of keep on top of as much as they can of these developments, especially in, in the really big, um, the really big tech companies, because again, a lot of things, a lot of people are, are bringing up this issue of, you know, the business models of these companies and the fact that they can't, they can't, you know, function in the way they do. They can't be as successful as they are now if they don't, you know, if we don't stay dependent on them and if they don't keep our attention in this attention economy and all these different things. So um, they are going to keep trying to infiltrate our lives. And I think that, again, we need to be we need to be mindful of that so that, again, we can choose how much of it we allow into, you know, our home and our oven as well. How much of technology do you think is or, or or rather whether it's apps or devices uh, how much of the technology do you feel is absolutely necessary in the day that we're living in today and how right. much of it do do you believe is uh perceived as necessary but at the end of the day right. it's actually not and 
it, we, we just believe it's necessary because society is telling us that it is. Right. I think that that's a really difficult question. And I feel like that's, that's one of those questions where, again, you, you can, you can make a lot of people angry depending on how you answer it. Because <laughs> right, I think, right. again, it kind of, I think each, each one of us as an individual uh, has to answer that question because we all have different, you know, we all have different tolerance levels when it comes to, to tech. We all have different tolerance levels to surveillance, for example. Uh, so, you know, one example, if you're using an app such as uh, Google Maps or you're using Uber or Lyft or, you know, any of these other uh, uh, kind of um, uh companies, you know, transportation companies, you have the option of kind of saving your home address uh, in those apps, right? Because your, your, your starting point most of the time is your home. And so if you want to, you can label that as home. I, for example, personally really don't like the idea of that. And so I don't have that memorized because I don't need Google to know that that is my home and I don't need Uber to know that that is my home. I just, I just don't want them to. I have plenty of friends and people in my life who don't think twice about that, right? They have no issue with Uber knowing that this is their home address. And so they put that in and they label it as, as their home. So, uh, you know, for me to try to convince them otherwise, or them try to convince me otherwise, it would probably be a completely kind of futile you know, discussion. There, there's just, I feel like there's no point arguing about those things, but those are some micro examples of how, like I said, I think we all just have very different, different tolerance levels. Um, one of the, the patents that Amazon has applied for, that's something that's going to be put into uh, their, their home speaker technology is that, you know, Alexa is, is going to be able to detect the things like the emotions in your voice. Um, she, although I don't want to use the word she because it's, <laughs> she's not a she, but Alexa, Alexa, the technology is going to be able to detect when your, your voice is a little bit more kind of rough or coarse so that wow. the technology can detect when you're possibly coming down with a cold or a flu. And then obviously, again, because Alexa is connected to, you know, to Amazon, the delivery services, Alexa will then be able to order cough syrup for you from say CVS, if you're living in the United States or any other drugstore, depending on where you're from. And then that's going to be delivered uh, to your home, right? Again, talking about personal tolerance levels and preferences, I have absolutely no desire to, to do that one day. I have absolutely no need to have a technology in my home that is going to be, never mind the data privacy and security issues, right? We haven't even gotten into that, but I don't need there to be a technology in my home that listens to me speaking all the time and then detects the, you know, the coarseness in my voice and then goes off and orders, you know, the syrup, which then arrives five hours later, you know, or, or whatever, whatever it is, because I, again, I have issues with that in terms of data privacy, security, all these kinds of things. Uh, but also I don't, I, I just kind of, again, it's an issue of identity, I guess. I don't want to be the person who can't take the elevator, go down, walk right, one block, yeah. buy cough syrup, and then come back home. Right. I don't, it, you know, I, I don't, I don't want there to be a reason in my life why I, I'm not capable of doing that by myself. Again, if you speak to some other people, they'll think, yeah, why not? That's so convenient. I'd love that, you know, cause then I can sit at home and watch Netflix, um, and binge, you know, for, for 15 hours and whatever, you know, Alexa can just go off and 
and do you know her thing and uh and 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 kind of take care of me right in in that sense because there there is also a nurturing element in in all of that so it's you know for for me again if you ask me how much of this technology is really necessary i would tell you that it's it's very little uh because that is my on the one hand it's my personal preference but also i am worried because of the work that I do, I have an insight into some of these issues with data privacy and security and just what, you know, the potential this has uh, to, to affect us psychologically. But when you talk to some other people, they may not think of it as a big deal at all. And maybe if you give them a little bit more of information, they will change some of their habits. But I would imagine that there are a lot of people out there who are just going to think, no, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to carry on doing the same thing that I've always been doing because I think this is perfectly fine. And again, you'll have a lot of people who will say this is just the way of the world. This is how the world works, um, which usually, I mean, when I hear that statement, it does bother me a little bit because it makes it sound as though there's some kind of extraterrestrial life form that's imposing all of this on us. We are all creating this, each one of us on an individual level. Yes, it's also the software engineers who are creating the apps, but I, I don't think we we see ourselves as as powerful enough, which we absolutely are as the users and as the consumers, right? Without us as the users and the consumers, these things don't exist because they don't have an audience, right? They don't have a consumer base. So I think as as individuals, we have a huge amount of power to change the the landscape of technology in today's world. But I think we do need to take on some of that personal responsibility and and think about you know some of the issues involved with allowing that much technology um, into into our lives. And one one uh, book that I relatively recently read that I would also recommend to a lot of people. It's actually written by by Dan Brown, who I think is another author who kind of splits split, there's split opinions on on people. He of course wrote The Da Vinci Code and, and Angels and Demons, and these are all books that I love. So I read Dan Brown, but I really would recommend um, that people read his his uh, his latest book, which actually now for a second I've forgotten the name of, but I will look it up and let you know what it is because he he toys with this idea of. Uh, of kind of technology and and humans and the way those two almost life forms he he looks at both of them as life forms the way they are starting to kind of come together uh, and and fuse it's called origins okay i just remembered um so it's it's called origins it, and it's a really interesting book and it's a little bit for me again it's a little bit scary because it he he does show this this kind of very clear path forward of you know, along which humans and and technology are are going to come together and and fuse almost into into one life form. It sounds a little bit sci-fi, but I think again, in in some ways, it's happening already. Yeah, it's right right around the corner. There have been a good deal of studies actually that have come out recently. When you were talking about Alexa, this made me think about it. Um, where right. eventually artificial intelligence is going to get to a point where it knows us better than we know ourselves. And right. it, you're absolutely right. It's up to the individual with regards to how okay they are with that. There may be yes. there may be some that are like, oh yeah, that that sounds great. That makes my life so much easier if this um, uh, artificially intelligent being of some sort uh, can take care of you know whether it's chores or or maybe something even bigger. Whereas there's right. some that are like, uh, I'm not really I'm not really cool with 
uh, some sort of separate entity knowing every single thing about my life or knowing me better than I know myself. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And there's just, there's, there's one thing there when it comes to AI. Again, that's, that's a whole, I think, other conversation. I think all these, these different aspects of technology kind of warrant their own, their own kind of conversation and investigation. But recently I've read a couple of articles. Uh, I forget what, what the university is at which, uh, all this research is, is happening, but they're looking into AI. And again, they're looking into, like you said, you know, AI kind of knowing you. So they're, they're looking at emotional intelligence within artificial intelligence and basically uh, teaching, you know, teaching and training robots uh, to be able to detect emotions in human beings based on, I think for the most part, they're using uh, kind of facial recognition. So we have um, well over 50 um, uh, facial muscles in, in our face that all create, you know, the various different facial expressions that we use in order to communicate with others, you know, how how we're feeling, what we're thinking, how we're about to, to behave. It's, it's a kind of signaling system. And so in that sense, of course, you might think that it lends itself quite well to AI and to teaching robots about it. And so one of the, one of the applications that, that they were talking about was teaching, uh, or sorry, not teaching, but basically using some of these robots as assistants to mental health practitioners so that these robots can basically you know, uh, detect things like depression and anxiety and, uh, you know, potentially even suicidal thoughts by looking into, you know, the, the tone of a person's voice and perhaps, um, you know, the words that they're using, because a lot of research shows that if you pay attention to how uh, a suicidal person speaks, you'll be able to tell that their language has a certain quality to it, which will then tell you that they have potentially suicidal ideas. And anytime I hear about those kinds of applications, my first question is, why don't we teach the mental health professionals how to do that better? Then they already know how to do it, right? Because they've gone through graduate school, they'll go through thousands of hours of, of supervised, um, you know, work with their potential clients and so on. But my, my question always brings it back to the human because, and again, the, the, you know, this, this is me because of the work that I do. I always want to teach the human how to be a better human. <laughs> You know, so, you know, it, to me, that sounds like the most logical, simple thing. But again, if you speak to a techie or if you speak to a software engineer or if you speak to somebody who does, you know, say AI research at MIT, they'll, you know, to them, the, the other side is probably logical. Like, yeah, but wouldn't it be so cool if we created a robot that could do that? And I'm thinking, yeah, it's very cool. I mean, it's an incredible feat of human, you know, creativity and imagination and, and skill to be able to create a, a robot that can detect emotions. I mean, that is, it, it is, uh, you know, cool, I guess, cool is the, the, you know, the word for it or, or whatever it is. But my question is always, yes, but I want to teach the human how to be uh, not a better human, but how to really use our full range and our, and our full capacity. So for me, again, I, I don't have an interest in teaching a robot how to say, detect a child's emotions better. I want to learn how to detect a child's emotions better. And I want to teach, you know, other say teachers or principals or parents or 
behavioral therapists or, you know, whoever, whoever else it is, how to do that better. Now, there are absolutely, um, you know, wonderful ways in which we can use some of this uh, uh, technology. Um, one, I think one of the applications that they're looking at is uh, using some of these robots with aging populations, because you, you do find that there's a lot of social isolation with the older uh, generations. And a lot of times it, it's, it's realistically challenging, again, because of their age to, to create social groups for them. And so in, in certain instances, having uh, a robot there um, for an elderly individual who doesn't maybe have any family or friends close by, say they live in a remote location, that'd be absolutely wonderful. But again, because the whole point there is to help ultimately help the human. And for me, if you're, you know, if, if I'm a mental health professional, I would rather not have a robot there to help me do what my job is, right? I, I'm I'm supposed to be better at detecting the human, right? A job that really requires deep, yes. genuine human skills. Absolutely, exactly, yeah. So, so I'm I mean I'm very excited about the potential of AI as well. I I really think it is it's it's something that we could probably only dream of um, up until say twenty, thirty, or or fifty years ago. But again, I think for all of us who are in this digital wellness space, for all of us who are thinking about um, humane technology, uh, the priority is always to empower the human, um, you know, as much as possible. And for me. The, the whole point is to, you know, not to merge technology with humans in order to make humans superhumans. It's, it's to use what we're kind of naturally gifted with, which is our brain, which, by the way, is the most incredible piece of technology that's ever been, <laughs> you know, created, quote unquote, um, to use, to really use that brain and come up with ways of, okay, how can we amplify it? How can we increase our empathy? How can we increase our, our capability for emotional intelligence? How can we, how can we do that human to human and not, you know, robot to human. Teodora, you have a very inspiring TEDx talk that you did on emo diversity. And yeah. before before watching the talk, I was like, emo diversity? Like, well, what <laughs> yeah. is that? Um, yeah. But then after watching it, uh, to everybody listening, I highly recommend watching this uh, TEDx talk. Um, it was really enlightening and just talking about humans, our relationships to each other, our relationships to yeah. technology. I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about uh, emo diversity and, and, and talk about those uh, emotions that we are uh, briefly touching upon. Sure, sure. So the concept of, of emo diversity, it is an aspect of the kind of general field of emotional intelligence. And it's it's not something, again, like you said, it, it was a completely new concept to you. I think it is to most people, even when I speak to people who have a psychology or a psychotherapy or counseling background, most people don't know what it is because it is a relatively, uh, it's a relatively young concept and it's mostly come out of, of kind of the, the more research based field of psychology where um, people were interested in in looking at okay what are the benefits of having you know having diversity within nature within an ecosystem we know is hugely beneficial and so they were thinking okay well when you look at human emotions if you think of them as a kind of emotional ecosystem uh, what do you get when when you have a very diverse kind of very diverse landscape there and so 
Uh, not a lot of research exists in the field yet, but what it's shown is that it seems to be beneficial to us to have a, a very diverse range of emotions that kind of go all along that spectrum of what we consider to be positive emotions, what we also consider to be negative emotions, and kind of everything that exists in between those two. So um, the what the largest study that was done so far showed was that if you experience um, a mix of positive and negative emotions on a relatively regular basis, in the long run, your mental health does tend to be better. But what they also found then, which is the really interesting find, is that if you also um, experience a lot of negative emotions in the moment, in the long run, you seem to suffer less from mental health issues like depression. And oh, of wow. course, then that's that's a huge question mark because that doesn't seem to make sense, right? Because it seems to suggest that, okay, if I feel sad really often, and if I feel nervous very often, then somehow that seems to protect me in the long run from suffering from depression. So of course, it, it doesn't suggest that you should be spending all of your time kind of immersed in those um, unpleasant emotions. That's not really, to me anyway, what it suggests. And I mentioned that in my in my TEDx talk as well. But to me, what, what that suggests is that the reason why we end up suffering, not always, but a lot of the times, the reason why we end up suffering from things like depression and, and anxiety is because we don't deal with those unpleasant emotions when they're actually occurring. I think that's, that's to me, that's what that research suggests. And that's why I think emo diversity is something I want as many people as possible to, to know about, because I really think we can use it as an emotional regulation tool. And emotional re regulation, again, within children is a really hot topic right now. Um, people are talking about it all the time. How can we teach kids to regulate their emotions? And I think this is one of the the best ways of doing it. And again, I, I talk about that a lot in my TEDx talk. We don't encourage kids to, and we don't really self-encourage either, uh, to, you know, to express those um, really uncomfortable, sometimes embarrassing, most of the times just inconvenient emotions like anger uh, and like fear and even like, you know, disgust and, and things like that. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to encourage a two-year-old, yes, please, you know, show me your anger. Show me how annoyed you are right now. Show me how much you don't want to share your toy. Show me how much you hate me in this moment because I didn't give you candy. You know, we don't do that. Uh, we try and squish those as much as possible. Uh, we try and replace them with, you know, just smile, be happy, go play, uh, you know, be nice to your little sister or brother, you know, whatever it is. And I think it's that, you know, that squashing, to use a non-scientific term, is in the long run, then what can cause us a lot of these really difficult mental health, really illnesses, they, they eventually become illnesses, because we don't allow ourselves to feel enough of those, what we call negative emotions, I don't really like to use that term, but those unpleasant, really difficult, a lot of times painful emotions, we tend, we tend to try and squash them and kind of increase the levels of the more pleasant emotions and by doing that we 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 kind of we hurt the the diversity of, of our emotional landscape of our emotional ecosystem and we kind of you know we become a little bit uh lopsided or sometimes very very lopsided and then you know that that's how we're taught as children to deal with our emotions to try and again either ignore or or put you know push away those unpleasant ones and then as adults we end up having a lot of issues with that because then you find yourself being a uh, 30 or a 40 or a 50 year old who doesn't really know 
what to do with anger. When, when you feel anger, you have no clue. First of all, a lot of times people don't know that that's what it is, um, you know, that it is anger. They don't, they don't know how to name it. They don't know how to describe it. They don't know where it's coming from. They don't know what it's a reaction to. Uh, they don't know what the source of it is. And then one thing they definitely don't know is, okay, what do I do with it now? Now that it's that it's here, it's it's not going anywhere, and it has to it has to come out some way. So again, it's all about choice, really, and that's a really big component of in general, what it means to be emotionally intelligent. On the one hand, it's about, okay, I'm able to recognize my emotions in my mind and in my body. I'm able to identify them. I'm able to tell the difference between, say, you know, full-on anger and irritation and then nervousness. These things are all different. It's not the same emotion, but a lot of times we tend to kind of cluster them together. So the first part is really knowing those emotions. The second part is understanding kind of where they're coming from. So what are the environments that seem to really trigger me or who are the people who seem to trigger me a lot? What are some of the, the behaviors that I have or thoughts that I have that will trigger these emotions so that you kind of understand their source? And then finally is that emotional regulation part where you go, okay, you know, these are the emotions that I have. Am I happy with that? Uh, with that level of diversity and those levels. If I'm not, and if I want to change them, how am I going to regulate them? And that's the part where we really, again, earlier we were talking about kind of choosing the trance that you want to be in. It's about choosing the emotions that you want to spend uh, more time experiencing. And again, we can't remove short of removing that part of our brain, we can't remove emotions like fear and emotions like anger. Um, those are, you know, it's thanks to those emotions that we're here talking to each other today. So what's really important then uh, when it comes to this, this topic of emo diversity is really on the one hand for us to be able to find ways to really build up our tolerance for you know, these really heavy, you know, sometimes painful, unpleasant uh, emotions like anger and fear that are not going anywhere and that no matter what we do, we can't really remove them. But then on the other hand, really to think about the the people and the actions and the environments which really kind of help us to thrive and to experience a lot of those really pleasant and and um, positive and uplifting emotions as well. And so to then eventually, you know, with practice, create a really good balance uh, between those two. And then, you know, as a result, to diversify uh, that emotional ecosystem and and landscape. Awesome. Yeah. And, and with what you've done with your work, you work from a standpoint that's really purely human. And I want to right. commend you for doing that with just uh, the variety of, of parents and children and just people in general that you've worked with. And so with that said, I'm wondering uh, what a, a relationship was that you had, whether personal or professional, that had a profound impact on your life. And, and why was this the case? Right. So that's, that's a really difficult, it's a great question and it's a really difficult one. And I'm kind of, uh, thinking out loud here, but I'm thinking, um, how I guess lucky I've been and how grateful I am that it's a struggle to think of just one, uh, relationship that, that would have had such a huge impact on me. I, I really, and I think partly the reason is that I've lived in so many different places and I, and I've had the chance to meet so many, uh, different people. And I really do believe that, that every single person in this world has, has the, the capacity to, 
to really, if not change your life, really impact your life in, in major ways. Cause we all come from just from, from such different stories. But I think, um, I could probably, would I be able to tell out to mention two? Yeah, Maybe. yeah absolutely. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so, so they both happen to be women. Uh, one of one of them is my mother, and then the other one is uh, she was my first uh, psychology professor w- when I started studying psychology as an as an undergraduate. So the the reason for for my mom being and continuing to be such an important I mean such an important part of my life it's it seems like an understatement but um, she she's really been kind of the the kind of of parent and I think kind of mother as well and I've I've written a blog about this why why moms are the most important uh, people in the world um she she's been that person for me who's who's really loved me unconditionally and I think we we tend to throw that concept around a lot about loving each other unconditionally we say that to our partners and our spouses we say that to our siblings sometimes um and you know a lot of the times I'm I'm sure it's true but the the value for a child um, of uh, a mother who loves them unconditionally, I mean, it can't be overstated. It, it really is the most important thing that any of us can experience on the planet. And I, I often don't don't feel good talking about my own personal experience because I know that there are so many people out there who don't have that, um, unfortunately, in in their own life. And and when I work with kids who don't have that. It just, it's, it's heartbreaking for me, but, um, but the, the relationship that I've had with my mother really every single day of, of my life is, has been the most important relationship for me because of that. Um, because I, I know that there's, there's, there's one human being out there in the world who loves me no matter what. Um, but, but really and truly does. And I think that's something that every single human being needs to have um, because we, we, you know, we, we don't really get um, kind of a sense of ourselves, of, of who we are and what we want in life and what we deserve in life as well. Um, our, our self-esteem, the way we value ourselves, all of that is, is attached to, I mean, both our parents in, in different ways, but in particular to that sense of unconditional love that we mostly tend to get, tend to get from, from moms. And a lot of psychologists have written about kind of the different roles that moms and dads play in our lives. Obviously we need to update that a little bit nowadays because the kind of the landscape of parenting has changed a lot. Uh, the way we talk about gender has also changed a lot. So there's a lot more fluidity there. So some of those old concepts may not be uh, quite as applicable anymore. Because, because those, those things have, have changed and been changing over the past, uh, you know, several decades. But having, having that one person in your life who loves you unconditionally just gives you a, a kind of, um, a kind of, it's a kind of base and it's a kind of home, an emotional home from which you can then really go out into the world and try and do all kinds of things. You can do stupid things. You can make mistakes. You can fail. You can do, you know, you can do all sorts of stuff. But when there's that one person out there in the world who loves you unconditionally, that's kind of the, the kind of almost like the safe harbor that you can come back to and that, that you can really use to always say, you know, but I'm still okay. I'm still worthy as a human being. And that's another topic that has received a lot of attention recently with some of the amazing 
individuals who are doing research in this field, uh, people like Brene Brown, who's talking a lot about our just our, our kind of our self-identity, our concept of ourselves, the way we value or don't value ourselves, our sense of, of guilt and shame. That's something she talks about a lot as well. So so yeah, so the the one of the people I would I would say or one of the relationships that's that's been the most important one in my life is definitely the one that I have with my mom. And then the other one is like I said, my very first psychology uh, professor. And I think actually now that I that I come to to think about it, the reason the reasons overlap a little bit. I think the reason why she was so important to me in terms of my you know, my career and the way I developed as a psychologist is because again, she kind of without a shadow of a doubt believed that I could become a really, really good psychologist. Um, and again, I think that's what a mother's unconditional love says is, you know, I believe that you, not even that you can, that you will become, that you are a really, really good human being, um, that you're a worthy human being. And my, my psychology professor, her belief was that I have, you know, I have the potential, I have what it takes to be a really, really good, uh, psychologist. And, her, my, even though we don't really have a relationship anymore, this was many years ago, uh, that belief that she had in me and the fact that there was no doubt at all is still something that carries me to this day. Anytime I struggle with things like, you know, imposter syndrome or kind of my, my belief in myself gets, gets shaken up a little bit. Um, I always have her voice there and I have that memory of that conversation that we had, I still remember it in so much detail, where she said, oh, yeah, yeah, clinical psychology, that's definitely the way for you to go. Yeah, it's it's always amazing the power that someone believing in you could have. Um, oh, yeah. Absolutely. And a lot of ways, it makes it a lot easier to believe in yourself. Absolutely. Yes. And you see, I mean, we, you know, human beings, we're incredibly adaptable. We're incredibly resilient. Um, we can persevere through through so much. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the times people who don't have that in their external world, who don't have that relationship, they do have the capacity and the ability to build that up on their own. Um, and, and you know, you, you see people who've, who've accomplished a lot of incredible things in their life without a whole lot of support from the outside. But it's just, it's a lot easier, of course, to do it if you have kind of, if you have people on your team who really have that belief so that you can share that, um, you can kind of distribute it among, uh, you know, your, your friends or your family, your mentors, whoever it might be. It just makes the job, um, you know, that, that much easier. Right, absolutely. And so, uh, Teodora, I have just one more question for you uh, today. Um, so my question for you is, you know, we talked a lot about, um, you know, relationships um, yeah. with technology, how, how it impacts society today, uh, how we relate to each other as human beings, especially as technology is continuing to advance. Right. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering when you think of a genuine, deep, meaningful human relationship, mm. what comes, what comes to mind? What would your definition of an ideal relationship be? Ah, mm. uh, good question. I have, I have not thought of that before. I think for me, uh, as, as you were asking that question, what was coming to my mind was I was just seeing 
the faces of people I know uh, in my life, whether whether it's uh, you know my friends or or my family, uh, whether they're near or far, just kind of uh, almost like a like a flashback of of all the people I've ever known. So I think I think the maybe the the first and most important component of any good relationship is actual FaceTime. So actual, um, you know, being present in the same physical space, in the same room with each other and, uh, you know, using, using all of those, those kind of natural human tools that we've been given in order to connect with each other. So things like, uh, you know, facial expressions, things like making eye contact, uh, things like adjusting your tone of voice uh, when you're trying to express um love or connection or affection or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be using our, our body language and our posture, just, just using, using physical touch, you know, when, when it's appropriate, just using all those things to connect with, uh, another person. I think that kind of, if you think of it as a more kind of technical, physical component, I think is, is the most important thing. And there's no, kind or amount of technology that can replace that because again our 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 brain has evolved over hundreds of, of thousands of years to kind of not just prefer but really demand uh, you know physical physical presence and physical contact in order for the brain to develop in a healthy way which is as an aside why I'm so concerned about children being overexposed to technology because their brains just can't develop um, in a in a kind of natural way if they're not hyper connected to other human beings as opposed to technology. So I would say that's probably the first, the first component of a really healthy relationship. I think another component is, is really thinking about what, not, not just what you yourself need in that relationship, but what the other person needs in that relationship. So there's, the, the, there's a certain kind of reciprocity when it, when it comes to that. Um, I think a lot of times, of course, we all, we're naturally selfish. Again, it's a, it's a survival mechanism. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's perfectly human to be selfish, but I think striking that balance between what I give and, and what I take is, is a really important one for a healthy relationship. And of course, sometimes anyone who, who is in a, in a committed relationship knows that that's difficult and it doesn't always work on a day-to-day basis, but just making sure that overall, uh, both your needs and your partner's needs are, are met. And again, this applies to any kind of relationship, whether it's with, you know, with the child or, or a romantic partner. Um, and I think another, maybe, I mean, there's so many different components, but perhaps a third one, I think a lot of times, a relationship really goes through through its biggest kind of tests when things are not really going that well, um, when our partner is going through a difficult time or they're ex- kind of expressing some of those really uncomfortable emotions like anger or like fear, hesitation, uh, anxiety, nervousness, um, a low self-esteem, self-doubt, those things. I think the way we show up for our children and our partners and our friends and our siblings when they're experiencing those emotions uh, really also kind of defines how how good or bad or healthy or unhealthy that, that relationship is. So having the ability to to really be, to tolerate that ourselves when they're going through those really, really difficult emotions to really still try to accept them, you know, even when, when they're going through those emotions to really be as non-judgmental as we possibly can, to be as supportive as we possibly can to really, again, even if we can't maybe 
you know, literally unconditionally love them to try and come as, as close to that as possible. In, in psychotherapy, uh, we call that um, unconditional positive regard. So even if it's not unconditional love, you can maybe try to practice this, uh, this unconditional positive regard where, where you really let the person know that, you know, that you're fine with them being, you know, whatever, or, or you're fine with them going through whatever it is that they're going through and that you're there for them and that you'll still be for them you know, even, even when they come out of that, obviously, of course, you know, you always want to make sure that you're not in any physical harm, that they're not in any physical harm. If you're in a relationship that is, that is really, uh, hurtful to you. Um, and that's, you know, um, that's just not a healthy relationship. You, you need to find ways to, to either make that relationship better or to get out of it. So I would never encourage anyone to stay or to maintain a relationship um, that is really damaging in a physical or a mental way. Um, but I think we we need to work a little bit on building up our tolerance for um, f- for those uncomfortable emotions that maybe come from the other person in our relationship and to not reject that person uh, uh you know, when they're, when they're going through those, but really to, to help them figure those out and, and help them regulate those emotions. Because the, the way that we learn how to regulate emotions is through co-regulating them. We, we can't learn those things in isolation. And so really focusing on, on helping each other, uh, become healthier human beings. I think that's, that's probably the greatest marker, um, of a healthy relationship. That's a great way to put it. Helping each other become healthier human beings. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Theodora, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. There are a lot of great tidbits of information throughout our conversation. Uh, Before we head off, I just want to uh, ask you where people could find out more information about you and your work. Sure, sure. So there, there are a few different ways. Um, and I think for, for the sake of avoiding uh, misspellings and things like that, we'll just be able to share some links with people so that they can find me. Um, on yes, absolutely. Platforms. Yeah. Um, yep. People can, uh, can find me on my website. Um, if they, if they want. So that's, uh, topcoaching.com. So that's teopcoaching.com. Um, they'll be able to get in touch with me through there. They'll be able to find me on, uh, social media through there as well. Uh, which of course I try to use as responsibly and healthily as I possibly can. Um, but I am on, uh, on Twitter and on Facebook as well. So, um, if they do a, a quick search, they'll be able to find me, or again, they can just go to my website. I think that's, that's the easiest way to, um, uh, uh, to, to find me on those platforms. And then of course they can email me, um, anytime they want. Uh, that's probably the easiest way, uh, to get in touch with me. Um, and so the easiest, uh, way to email me is just, uh, my first name period, my last name at gmail.com. So that's Teodora period Pavkovic at gmail.com. Awesome. Sounds good. And we'll be able to uh, include all that information as well in the show notes. So Teodora, thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Pat. And um, I congratulate you on this podcast. And I know that you're going to have lots of really wonderful uh, guests coming on. And I just really appreciate all the effort that you're that you're putting into, again, this whole field of, of digital wellness to try and expand that and just to try and kind of raise people's awareness about that as much as possible. So thank you for uh, for inviting me here to talk some more about that. Yeah, absolutely. There you have it, everyone. Teodora Pavkovich, 
It's always great chatting with her. Every time we chat, I feel like I learned something new, and I hope that you learned something new as well. Please, if you want to learn more information about Teodora, be sure to visit her website at topcoaching.com. That is topcoaching.com, and we'll make sure to provide these links as well in the show notes. And if you like what you hear on ships, be sure to download, share with your friends. And also, you have the opportunity to send in voice messages. So if you like what you're hearing, feel free to send me a message. All you have to do is download the Anchor app, and perhaps I will publish your voice message on our platform. So thank you so much for being with us today, and stay tuned for our next episode.